I found ourselves in Phoenix, Arizona. We were connected to a particular ministry there. And uh, each time that we went, we, we made the couple of hours trip up to Sedona. And if you've been in Arizona, it's a magnificent state and has, you know, rocks and sands and soils that are of different color than anywhere else that you'll find. And we had heard about Sedona and about the beauty of the big red sort of sandstone cliffs and the outcroppings that, that could be seen there. So the first time that we went there, we were really excited to make the trip. And so we got up early in the morning and drove up. And as you drive up that, that valley, it's a, it's a favorite place for hot air ballooning. So it was just majestic. I mean, there was this gorgeous blue sky and these colorful balloons floating all along the thing. And then as we got up to Sedona, um, it became even more splendid. I mean, the, the, the pictures that we had seen didn't do justice to this incredible scenery of the great cliffs and, and uh, sandstone of Sedona. So after we had done that a few times, um, we were talking with some friends, and they said that they also really loved going to Sedona, and they began to describe why they loved it, and they, they said what it looked like. And they asked us if we had seen such and such a, a place, and, and we looked at each other and said, no, we, we didn't see that when we were there, did we? No, we couldn't remember that we had. They began to talk about certain restaurants and certain features on the main street, and Annabeth and I looked at each other and said, we, we've never seen those things. Why are we not remembering what these people are talking about? So the next time we went to Phoenix, we were a little bit more um, creative, and we checked out a map, and to our surprise, where we thought we went wasn't Sedona. It was about five or six miles short of the trip to Sedona. It was gorgeous where we went, but when we drove the extra five or six miles, oh my goodness, the splendor and the spectacular vista was even more enormous than we could possibly have imagined. And, and we sort of looked at each other and promised we'd never tell people that we had been visiting Sedona, as far as we were concerned, for all these years and never, ever actually got to Sedona. I want to talk to us today about going farther than Sedona, and I think you'll probably catch on to what I mean by that as we go a little bit farther into our talk. So we have been going to the life of Jesus. We've done it now in two particular series. The first series was one in which we listened to a friend of Jesus who told us all the times that Jesus began something by saying, I am. And so as we heard him describe himself, introduce himself with his I am statements, we began to see that he was describing a religion that was very different from the religion of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes all around them. He told in just ordinary, plain language what it was like to live a religious life. And so it was just like living water, it was like being the light of the world, it was like being sheep in a sheep pen and that sort of thing, against the background of thousands and thousands and thousands of rules by the Pharisees. Then we moved on, and the second series that we have been in is one in which we have heard Luke tell us what the other synoptics, what the other gospel writers have not recorded, and they are parables. The other writers tell us about some parables, but Luke tells us about these particular parables that nobody else talks about, and we've been listening carefully to those parables, wanting to understand why Luke assembled those and why Jesus told those particular stories. 
what was behind the stories that Jesus was telling. Um, because we're told that he didn't teach anybody anything without telling stories. He just told stories. And so we need to understand what the stories were and what they meant. And I want to just remind you of the stories that we heard about. So see if you can remember um, if you were here. And if you were here and can't remember, uh-oh, um, bad on me, maybe bad on you. But there was one about the unworthy servants, right? Remember that story where Jesus said, you know, at the end of the day, you don't go home and have your master say, thank you very much for serving me so well. At the end of the day, you're still an unworthy servant. We heard the story about the Good Samaritan, a very familiar story, and we began in that story to sort of sort through what Jesus was getting at when he actually said that a person who was not right and didn't live right actually was proved to be a righteous person. The one that was the least likely to be the hero was the hero in the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember the Midnight Pesterer? I don't know a better way to say that. It's this guy whose friend comes in the middle of the night, he didn't expect him, so he goes and he rattles his neighbor's gate and says, can you please give me some bread because we have unexpected company. And the neighbor says, please go away, we're all in bed, we're so tired, and we can't get up and get you some bread. And Jesus told the story that even though they were friends, that's not why he got up out of bed, it was because the person kept on pestering him. And we're told by Luke that Jesus told this story to tell us that we should pray without giving up. Pretty plain language and a pretty plain message. The seat of honor, Jesus said some awkward things at a banquet um, where he was sort of the guest of honor, but um, when he was experienced at that banquet, he was awkward. And he finally said to the host, you know, what you do isn't the right way to do it. Don't invite the important people to your, to your dinner, because they'll just invite you back, and that's ordinary. Invite the people who can't invite you back. So here you are, and you have all of these special guests, and here's your one special guest saying, this is dumb. How do you go with that? Then there were the banquet excuses. I bought a cow. I've married a wife. I can't come. So the one who was throwing the banquet was furious and said, all right, you're not invited anymore and go to the highways and byways and tell anybody who wants to come that they are welcome to come. What's Jesus trying to tell us in these stories? What's he telling us about the kingdom? What's he telling us about God in telling us these particular stories? The cost of discipleship. Um, it was here that Jesus sort of blew the whistle and said, okay, all of you people who love hanging out with me, who love listening to these stories, who like the miracles, you should think about this very carefully because don't be too quick to sign up. If you're not willing to lose your life, you should probably go home. If you're not willing to carry your cross, if you're not willing to you know, say goodbye to your family, you should probably just stay home and don't think about following me. And uh, we're told after that that a lot of people just went home. And they said, well, that was interesting, but you know, he goes a little too far. Parables about lost things, a coin, right, a sheep, a son. And we are told about God and that he apparently is ridiculously obsessed with finding lost things and lost people. We heard the story about the shrewd manager, um, where Jesus sort of praises this guy who is a scoundrel. He's going to get fired. So he figures out a way to finagle 
um, his master's debtors so that when he's fired, he can go back to them and he can make hay when the sun isn't shining because he has feathered his own nest. Love that mixture of little pictures there. The shrewd manager, the rich man and Lazarus. What was that about? Was this a real Lazarus and a real rich man? We talked about the strange idea um, that there was a Lazarus and Eleazar because that's the actual Aramaic term in the Old Testament, and it makes this story a very complex one about who it is that really is inheriting the kingdom of God. Bottom line with these stories is that if you thought you were good, if you thought you had a ticket to heaven, if you thought you were an insider, you better think twice. Most of the, the stories say, no, it's not the way you think it is. It doesn't go down the way you think it should go down. It is absolutely different in God's economy and in God's way of dealing with humankind. The widow and the judge, if we didn't have enough from the pestering neighbor, here's a widow, and we're told that there's a judge, and he doesn't care about God, and he doesn't care about people, he doesn't really care about justice, and she has been bothering him, bothering him about a matter of justice. So he finally says, I don't care about God, I don't care about people, but she is driving me crazy. So he settles her case. Not because of anything that is, you know, impressive about him, but that she's bothering him. So Jesus says, I'm telling you a story to tell you this. Don't stop praying. How's he characterizing God? He's not characterizing God like the wicked judge. He's just saying, here's the deal. Here's something that is astonishing, right? You wouldn't expect this to happen. But here's what actually happens. You can't out-bother God. You, he, you can't get to the point where he says, would you stop already? And you should keep on, keep on praying. That was the widow and the judge. And then we had two men who went to the temple, not to the bar. And the one said, I am so glad I'm not like everybody else. For example, that guy. And Jesus said, who do you think went home righteous? Not the guy that was bragging on his righteousness, but the one who was desperate and said, oh God, please help me. And then Brian talked to us last week about the ten minas, or the, the, the ten talents, and the matter of stewardship. And uh, what did Brian tell you? Tell me, what was the sermon about last Sunday? Just call it out. Bottom line? Yeah, it was the parable of the talents. Good. Will to say that again? To them that have, more will be given. Hmm, interesting. What else did you hear? About the heart? Okay. Okay. Good stuff. All right. I'll check with Brian and see if that's what he actually talked about. And, and we'll be able. And by the way, this was not Brian's idea. I'm just not going to let him get away with credit. Okay. It was Bethany and me and Brian reluctantly, reluctantly supporting us. Okay. Just, just for the record. I'm, n- I'm not petty <laughs> or anything like that. So here's the last parable that um, Luke kind of specially talks to us about. He says this, and Jesus told them this story. He said, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says the old is better. What do you make of that story? So, What I want to do is ask, 
what's, what's the point of Jesus? So we've, we've gone back and we're claiming that we have an accurate record of what he did and said. So never mind anything else yet about the rest of the Bible. If we just go to Jesus and listen to his teaching and watch what he does, what is he all about? And it would seem that this story, the story of the wine and wineskins, kind of gets to the point about why he's telling these stories. So he, he, again, refers to something that they would be very familiar with. So there, was, there were vineyards in Israel, and the way that wine was contained in Israel was in these wineskins. They were usually the, the dried um, carcasses or skins of, of goats. So you would cut off the head, cut off the legs and all that stuff, sew them up, and fill them with wine. And when you put new wine into a new wineskin, it was perfect because the wine would, would play with the, the pliability of the skin. So the skin could stretch, the skin could um, shrink again, and the wine could continue its fermenting for as long as was necessary until it was finally ready for drink. And by that time, the skin would have basically um, come to a, a, a fixed state and it would not stretch anymore and it wouldn't shrink anymore. And so you have a perfect vessel for this lovely wine that you have grown and fermented and now will enjoy from the wineskin. So Jesus says, everybody knows that you don't put new wine in an old wineskin. And we would say, hmm, not sure we knew that, but if, if you say so, well, you would know that if, if that was your day. He had already told them about a different scenario where he says, here's, here's a, a coat that needs a patch. So what do, you, what do you do? Do you go and take a new piece of cloth from a new garment and patch the old garment with that new garment patch? No, you, you'd never do that, he says. First of all, you'll have ruined the new garment and what's the point of that? And when you put a new fabric on old clothes, it's not going to work either. It's not going to have the play that it would need to have. So he says, everybody, that's just nonsense. And then he says, or, and he gets to this one, which is, I, I think, a more dynamic example that he's telling us about. So he says, don't take new wine and put it in an old wineskin, because what will happen is that the new wine will burst the wineskin. That old wineskin has no more play in it. It's not supple at all, that it's fixed, it's old, it's stayed. And so if you put new wine in there, it will literally burst the wineskin. What you need to do is if you have new wine, you need to place it in a new wineskin and everything will be fine. But then he says this other thing, which is like what he does. It's, I get what you're saying, but now what's the point of this next part? He says, and no one after drinking old wine wishes for new for he says the old's better what's the point of that put new wine in a new wineskin so it doesn't burst the old wineskin but by the way nobody likes new wine it's true isn't it right i mean it's apparently the year so if you go to a wine store and someone pretends they know about wine because nobody they don't know what they think they know right when, when they say you can taste you know um roses in it. No, you can't. I don't know what you can taste in it. You can taste alcohol in it. When that person says 2015 was a great year for that variety, 
It's because they know their stuff, or they've been told this, and they are selling something based on its vintage. 2015 was a good year. It's a good year now to drink 2015. If you leave it for another year, it'll be too late. It will have passed its prime. So the vintage of that wine is critical. And Jesus says, yeah, everybody knows that old wine is better than new wine. People prefer the old wine. And it literally says that they will say the old wine is better. Translations, because they're trying to figure out what Jesus is talking about, change that and say the old wine is good enough. It's not what it says. It says the old wine is better. Everybody says so. So how do we unravel this? What, what is he getting at? So I think it's pretty obvious to the people who are listening to him that he is bringing new wine. And he is wanting to challenge the wineskins of the Pharisees, right? Because he's saying everything that you thought you knew about religion, think twice. And at the end of the day, the new wine of what I am bringing, if you put it in old wineskins, it'll burst the old wineskins. You need new wineskins. So we might say, well, I think that's it. The whole point of the stories that Jesus told was the renovation of religion, right? He came to fix what was terribly broken, which was religion. And the people who were practicing religion had no idea that they were practicing something that was broken. They thought they were being faithful. They were certainly, the lay people were doing what they were told by the Pharisees. The students were still examining the law and worrying it down to the last little jot or tittle, right? The, the last little comma or, or period for us. And they thought they were doing what they should be doing. And Jesus took them by surprise by showing up and saying, no, you have it wrong. And they were not evil at heart. They were not people who set out in the morning to, to manipulate or twist religion. They were not trying to be bad. They were not trying to lead the people down a wrong path. They, they'd been caught up in some terrible things like pride and arrogance and wealth, and he went after those things. But it's not because they started to try to be false religious teachers. So Jesus comes along and he says, but in fact, that's what you've produced. So you need to have new wineskins. And we don't know what they are yet. He's just saying, this religion that you've been practicing is old wine. It has been fine in the old wineskins because it has put no pressure on the old wineskins. It has worked well for you, hasn't it? And every generation is prone to settling down into what has been working just fine for us. Because that's part of being human, is to say, I don't like change. And anybody who says they like change, what they mean is they like you to change. Because even we who say we like change, if you're talking about me, no, no. No, that should change, or this should change, or you should change. So everybody, as, as a human, likes to know what the terms are. I mean, we like to know what our bearings are, what the expectations are, what the rules are. And what Jesus is saying, I think, to the Pharisees and to the religion of the day is that you all have settled very comfortably into wineskins that contain your religion. I'm here to tell you that you need new wineskins. Why? Because there's new wine. 
Now, they haven't gotten to the point yet of asking what the new wine is. They're hearing him say that they must give up their wineskins in favor of new ones. They're hearing him say that things have to change. Religion has to change. So as we've been listening to him, we've heard him tell stories. We've heard him say, I am, I am, I am. And we could take that to be sort of the, the, the final deal, is that Jesus came to finally fix religion. And, and if, if they had heard that that was what he was on about, and if they had responded to him, maybe we could say, it doesn't matter what else we need to think about, because apparently, at, at the end of the day, what Jesus wanted was better religion. The problem is, Jesus wasn't satisfied with better religion, right? Because if it was just great teaching, if it was gr just a great show that he came to bring them, in, in the process of renovating religion, he wouldn't have gone on about some things that he wouldn't stop talking about. He would have let his disciples shut him down when he kept saying he was going to die. He would have said, okay, you're right. I, I don't know, I had some sort of a messiah complex. Oh, bad pun there, right? Uh, whatever you want, let's just do it your way. Yeah, let's, let's get a campaign going. Let's make this a political movement. That'll be fine. But he wasn't willing for that. And whatever there was in what he was saying, it obviously was not only about renovating religion, because we're told after some things that Jesus said that a lot of people went home. So Jesus looked around at his disciples and said, so what about you? Are you going to quit as well? Well, there's nothing to quit over if all he's doing is saying religion sucks. We need better containers for religion. Everybody might say, yeah, okay, so what are your ideas? But he, it was far deeper than that. He said, are, are you going to go home? And they said, well, why would we go home? Who are we going to turn to? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. So I think Jesus would look around at us and say, so what about you? Are you going to go home as well? And I think we are probably in various ways at a point where we need to make a decision about that. Are you going to go home as well? Well, you see, I don't mind the idea that Jesus was a really radical teacher because religion was bad. And religion is bad, and I think religion today needs to be renovated, just like he's talking about. So I'm good with that. But when you say there's more, like there's actually a whole lot more, and it's not going to be just nice to hear about, interesting to think about, it may actually demand that you change your life. Then people say, hmm, I like his teaching, I think he was a good moral example, but, but I think that's where it ends. Jesus was just. But Jesus was pressing farther, and there was something that was under the surface that was beginning to burst up to the surface with him that is the rest of his story. It's the rest of what it means to follow Jesus. It's getting to Sedona instead of settling in the foothills. The foothills are about renovating religion, getting it right, and that's important. But Sedona is going deep. It's committing. And I think that's what we're going to find next 
is that the story of Jesus that we've been looking at is just the start of the whole thing. There's a whole lot more. There's a whole lot more that's like what we have thought before, and there's a whole lot more that's maybe different from what we thought before. And we need to be ready to start by saying yes on the renovation of religion. But if, if we thought that was going to be so painful, that's all we can manage, we haven't imagined what he actually will call for, what he actually will want us to understand, grasp, and internalize. But the story about the wineskins needs an answer on the what's he saying about the old wine being preferred. Is, is the old wine better? And so why is he going on about changing everything if the old wine is what we prefer? It's because I think Jesus is giving us a reality check that says, yes, people do like the old wine better. He's not making a comment on the quality of wine. He's saying, we don't like to change. And so when someone comes along and says, this is bad, it should be different, we'll just say, actually, it's fine. Don't change it. Leave it alone. And Jesus says, that's to be expected. Because everybody says, leave the old wine. It's good enough. No, the old wine is actually better. So don't be designing new things. We're quite happy with the old wine. Religion is the forum in society that more than any other likes the old wine. And in some ways, there's, there's a beauty to that, right? I mean, if, if I had my choice, I would go liturgical all the way. Um, I'd, I'd say creeds and prayers, and I'd have beautiful buildings with steeples and holy places and quiet and music. And there's, there's something very nice about all of that, right? But in the middle of that, we can forget that there's actually new wine. And the new wine doesn't like to inhabit old places. It just doesn't work. The new wine of Jesus needs new containers, and we need to be ready for those new containers. But here's the point. The story of the wineskins is not about wineskins. What is, it, what is it about? It's about wine. Isn't it? It's about new wine. So we could stop and say, oh my goodness, yeah, change. I don't really like change, and I guess there has to be change. And, you know, maybe even here, you know, look at what we've done. Is this really what we should have done? Um, wasn't it okay to be on Derry Road? And, and change is not all that easy. So we may say, I'm struggling enough with change. And the Holy Spirit would come and say, well, get over that. Because this story is not about change. It's just noting that change has to happen because there's new wine. That's the thing to get excited about. There's new wine. And there's new wine for every generation. Every year is a new vintage, right? How was 2018 for the Cabernet Franc grape? I don't know. But somebody does. And somebody will show that it nuances differently than the 2017 grape. And next year, there'll be a new variety, a new way that the grapes ferment and form, and there'll be a new wine for then. There is always new wine. 
And so there always need to be new containers, but that's not the point. The point is, Jesus says, I have come with new wine. Do you want it? And he says, if you don't get the wine thing, okay, I have come with living water. You know what water is, right? I have come to bring you water that if you drink this water, you will never be thirsty again. You know what bread is? I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you will live forever. And if you die, you will live again. But Jesus is saying to us today, I think, there's new wine. Do you want it? I read a commentary this week that, that really fascinated me. Um, this is a different time. So we keep saying that. It's a different time in our world. It's a different time in the church. The church is in turmoil. Um, the church that was working quite well for us for decades isn't working so well anymore. It's confusing as to how it relates to the world and to politics and to society. It's confusing that it has become a place where there is um, kind of the, the pathology of power there too, abusing its opportunities. And it's, it's just not that comfortable anymore to, to think about the church. It's, there's something disquieting. And people are saying it's changing. They're talking about there being a new reformation and saying that that's a good thing. And I think in some ways we don't know what the change is going to bring, but we do need to know that we're probably somewhere in a shift. And never mind all of that, I think that we, just ourselves here, just this little group, I think we're in a place where maybe there's a shift that is here for us. What I read was that this person is saying that what's happening right now is like the space between the lightning and the thunder. Isn't that an incredible thought? Because, you know, when you count the steamboats or whatever it is that you count to, to know how far away the, the lightning is, and somebody said it's thunder and lightning, and that got my head messed up because it's lightning and thunder, not thunder and lightning. You see it before you hear it, right? Am I right? Yes, I thought so. The space between the lightning and the thunder. Michael moved across northern Florida, the panhandle. And between the beginning of Michael, thanks, and the end of Michael was the eye of the storm, right? And in the eye of the storm, it's a place of quiet and peace and reflection. But you know that the eye will pass. So this idea is that there is something happening that is of magnificent proportion in terms of the church. And Jesus was saying the same things then. He was saying, you all have settled for something that is old wine in an old wineskin. I'm here with new wine. Now, by necessity, you will have to embrace new wineskins. But that's not as important as delighting in the wine that I'm bringing. So what I want us to do for the next while is to dig deep into what Jesus said and to discover the wine that he brought. Because he wouldn't be satisfied with fixing religion. He wouldn't be satisfied with starting a movement. He wouldn't be satisfied with the wisdom of his good friends. He kept insisting on some things that have profound meaning that are getting to Sedona instead of stopping 
and thinking the foothills are the big deal, are the whole deal. Between the lightning and the thunder, in the eye of the storm, and if you're Celtic like me, it's the thin place, that there's something that we are reaching into that is the new wine of this day. There will always be a new vintage. There is a new vintage that Jesus is bringing by his spirit. He always is and always will. But if we're satisfied with 2014 um, wines, Jesus would say, yeah, I, I get that. That was a good year. But I have new wine. And it is the, it's the wine the like of which would burst a wineskin. It's not about delicious taste and flavors and aromas. It is about a living, living substance that will, will tear apart anything that it invades. And it is, it is like um, eternal life gushing from the inner part of a person. It is deep, deep joy. It is going farther and farther and farther than you could imagine yourself going. It's like going into the ocean and getting past your knees and past your waist and over your head and swimming in the deep, deep ocean. That's the new wine that I want to bring. I do love C.S. Lewis. All those who agree with me say amen. All the rest of you promise to go and buy it. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan is the Christ character, the lion. And the witch um, figures out a way to get the lion on the stone table and kill him. And when that has all happened, the children are beside themselves in sorrow. Um, and something happens. Susan cried, is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It's more magic. They looked around. There, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan cried, both the children staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan, said Lucy. Not now, said Aslan. You're, you're not, not a, asked Susan in a shaky voice. She couldn't bring herself to say the word ghost. Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. The warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang around his mane came all over her. Do I look it, he said. Oh, you're real, you're real. Oh, Aslan, cried Lucy. But what does it all mean, asked Susan when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there's a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death would start working backwards. That's the rest of the story. That Jesus did not just come to fix religion. He came to fix everything. So from that perspective, let us now examine why he had to die. What happened when he died? Why, why could God not just have said, 
Everything is fine. It's fixed. Why did he have to die? And what happened when he died? What happened for me and for you? What happened to the world by his death? And what happens for the eternal future because of his death? Why was he not satisfied with fixing religion? What else did he come to do? I think a lot of it we know in our heads. That's my experience. But to really know it and to take it in like new wine and let it have its power in us is what's elusive. God so loved the world. Yeah, I know that. Why did Jesus die? Because God so loved the world. Why did he have to be raised from the dead? What was that? Because God so loved the world. The love of God is the deepest, most profound commodity in all of time and space. And Jesus, I think, is saying to us, if you thought that all I came to do was to teach good things and fix church, that's hardly the beginning. I came to renovate everything, including you. I came to change everything, including you. And I'm not done. And there is wine yet for you to drink that will burst forth from your innermost being into joy and delight forevermore. So do you want to just put it to bed and say, okay, we've done Jesus? Or do you want to say, wow, wait. Seems to me like there's a lot more for us to get. I think so, right? Yeah. Let's go to Sedona.